RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 3, Episode 18. Further notes on the Ferengi, June 22nd, 1987. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back to The Trek Files, all you Star Trek background fans, all you canonistas, I say that lovingly, yes, all you uh, tech heads, and of course, all you Trekophiles, spelled with an F, you history buffs out there. Another great show this week with another a fun document and a wonderful returning guest with us coming up in just a second. First off, take a listen to our sample. This is We're back in early roots, next generation time. Our guest this week was a direct witness. In fact, she wrote the memo. Take a listen, and while you are, remember you can find it on our Facebook homepage at The Trek Files. I would like to suggest that Ferengi first officers are like the good top kicks in any service. These are the ones who actually run the ship. Suppose the first officers are the ones who have had to have the difficult training involving the equivalent of Starfleet Academy and Harvard Business School. They can wheel and deal with the best. In fact, that's how they get the choice ship assignments. But they must also have all the technical knowledge to command the ships. The nominal commanders, like Lord Tar, have negotiated and administered their way to the position of captain. But in a real crunch, it's the first officer who commands. Yes, Trekophiles, that's it. Um, a memo from Dorothy Fontana to Gene Roddenberry following up on Herb Wright's initial comments, initial usages of the Ferengi. And, of course, we're talking the early roots of Next Generation when the Ferengi were set up to be the main new adversary. Yeah, Klingons, Romulans, that's so That's so 1960s. <laughs> we need something new and powerful and... Well, we know what happened with history, but at the moment, everything was fresh and new and being fleshed out before anything had aired to an audience. And that's why one of the names on this memo, Dorothy Fontana, is our guest this week. And Dorothy, it's so lovely to have you back with us. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Yes. And if I have to say, folks, you should know that Dorothy began, was, was far enough on her career that she wound up being assistant to Gene Roddenberry about the time Star Trek got off the ground in the 60s, wound up being his assistant, then story editor was compiling her own credits all over the place, professional sales, came back with um, as story editor and associate producer on the animated series and held the same position at the roots of Next Generation. Of course, among many famous scripts, the original series, in our context here, wrote the pilot, later amended by Gene with Q's plot, for the Encounter at Farpoint pilot. But all along through these days, 86 into 87, through your tenure, um, very much in the mix of fleshing out the shows, even the shows that you weren't actively working on yourself, right? That is correct. Yeah. So what is this, you, you, Herb Wright, which I, now that I'm getting into it, didn't realize that Herb was such, such the father of the Ferengi, as it were. But tell us a little bit about, about Herb and how he came to the... He, you were in the initial club <laughs> working on Next Gen, and Herb was one of the hires that came a little later, but that, still early. That is correct, uh, along with uh, Bob Lewin mm-hmm. and, uh, and Herb. Uh, he was uh, an experienced writer, but he hadn't done much science fiction. 
so he had to learn his way, but he also had a lot of ideas, including the Ferengi. And that was about, I mean, there was there was kind of a general feeling among everybody, some of those these notes from David Gerald and yourself about we, we should, and Bob Justman, we should come up with a new adversary, something that sets this series apart. Um, and I guess what, of all the people, all the, all the ideas being pitched around, brainstormed, that Herb and his Ferengi is what came to the top, I guess. Yes, it did. Uh, they were an interesting, different kind of uh, uh, enemy, if you will. Uh, occasionally, maybe sort of a friend, but uh, we liked them because they were, in fact, foreign, and they were different from our established Klingons and Romulans and Borg. Uh, so uh, this was greeted rather uh, well by Gene Roddenberry and uh, uh, Bob Lewin and myself, uh, but Herb expanded on his initial comments, and uh, I had to come in on them. Right. Well, was the initial gist of the Ferengi being that they were, and this is the 80s, this is the Reagan 80s, <laughs> and the me decade, or the greed decade even, uh, uh, Gecko's decade there from Wall Street, and that was kind of in the zeitgeist at the time, and they were meant to be a commentary on extreme greed and extreme capitalism, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And that, so that was part of their DNA from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, it was. But still, you had to flesh out a, a you had to flesh out their culture, right? Which right. you you have a little bit of a hand in doing that at times over the years. <laughs> yes, I'm thinking Vulcans, folks. Look it up uh, if you need to. But um, so, what strikes me about this memo is uh, is you're asking the questions that we would that, that Fringy made their debut in. Um, in the last outpost, kind of infamously, I know maybe that set, that episode didn't quite. Do you have a memory of that? Maybe not quite being as satisfying an intro as as people had hoped for the because they'd been around. This had happened long enough for them to be actually inserted with a couple of mentions in the pilot, even right. Right. Herb, Herb was a later a first wave, but later than the initial group when you were writing the script and right. But he, he latched onto the Ferengi and really felt that uh, they should be uh, not just exploited, but used in terms of dealing with our people and dealing with their own people. Um, because maybe not all the Ferengi are alike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so he came up with some, some very good ideas, I think. And uh, um, the one that they they easily sacrifice the second officer, eh, no problem. Uh, <laughs> uh, which... Uh, we felt that uh, right. That's point number two on this yeah, memo that, that, here. That data yeah. would, would have something to say about sacrificing second officers because <laughs> he was a second officer on the Enterprise, um, which got but, played for a comic a little it, bit of a yes, light moment yes. there. Yeah, well, right. we, we could do that with Brent because he is a very talented guy. Um, I mean, he sings things like Don Quixote. He's, he's appeared in that play, and and uh, uh, you know he, he's a writer. He's uh, an actor. He's uh, very, very talented man and fun to be around. And um, uh, he would have, he delivered that line just beautifully. <laughs> when it did work out. Well, at the time this is happening, they haven't aired, obviously, and yeah. they're in the middle of, they're about to be filmed. But the last outpost and then the battle it was the second. They aired, they were done, and I know your tenure ended midway-ish through the season mm-hmm. of your own accord, which I want to talk about in a minute, too. But... Um, 
there was a general feeling that uh, they weren't working out, that maybe they were more comical than menacing. Mm. People weren't taking them as adversaries. Uh, Herb had a hand in the teleplays of both times, but then there's actually film casting and filming and having the shows come out. Do you remember... Um, I mean, at the time this this was written, uh, those second those other episodes hadn't been filmed, so we're still in the in the brain trust stage here as far as what to go. But do you remember through the rest of your time um, any concerns or worries about having them be quite this adversarial? I mean, you're talking about fleshing out the culture, which is great, and I want to get to that. But do you remember seeing concerns about them living up to being the new bad guys? Not too many. Not in the office I was in. Yeah. <laughs> um, there may have been more behind the scenes. There may have been more on the part of the actors. For instance, uh, how are we going to deal with this if, if, if they're funny? Uh, how do we keep a you know a strong science fiction presence here if the other guy is funny? Um, so there was some concern, I think, right. you know, that way. But uh, we felt that it would work itself out in the scripts and, and that it could be handled. Right, and going with the well, I mean, not that not that short means funny, but that that's an obstacle to overcome if if the yeah. nominal look of the ray of the species is going to be that they're right. going to be shorter. Well, in this memo here, Herb's written some of his points out, mm-hmm. and we will get to those later. But in in your kind of adding on to that, some of these are uh, struck me as points that even as the Ferengis were were rested for a little bit and then retried in second season and then third season, and you know they survived the change from Maury Hurley to Michael Piller. But they were used, they became, if not comic you know, filler, uh, they became used in just a very specific way. And then that all changed on DS9 with Ira Baer and his take, and then Armin Shimmerman and Max Grudenchik playing Quark and Rom, and we're off to the races with the Ferengi. Right. Uh, but you're asking some questions here that I, uh, you know, part of this is getting about real gold and silver and let's have some, and we get into replicated metals and that whole question later on. But um, you're you're doing your thing here about trying to flesh out an, a new alien race and the bit about second officers is well taken. But uh, also here, an interesting vibe that the first officers are really the ones, as we heard, who are running the ship, and the and the uh, the lords, the captains, or later got the very quickly got the title of daemon, which has a human origin too. Yes, um, that they're almost there by uh, wheeling and dealing, but they're not on the tech hardcore side, which is an interesting concept and. And actually kind of came back around Fred Bronson and Susan Sackett's script for Menage Troy comes to a first officer threatening a daemon for his careless, you know, crazy antics. But even, yeah. I was going to say, we know it can happen in companies that people who are oh, not yeah. necessarily uh, the best people to run a company are in charge of the company. <laughs> we've seen that in history. Uh, we've also seen it in nations. So, uh, you know, it's it's... It's not so offbeat to suggest that the the experienced officers, the ones who really run the ship, are not totally in charge. Mm-hmm. And that that's an interesting situation when you get to storytelling. And it's a great, yeah, it, it's a great great way to flesh them out. And as you said, not all fringies are look alike. <laughs> They're not all monoliths, much less factions of of society. Um, and then we get to this point where you're talking about uh, armed conflict versus wheeling and dealing, and the fact that why did why did uh, you know the the battle in that script? And again, the audience hadn't seen it at this time. But why right. did Box Sun attack the Stargazer years earlier? Why did he not? Why was it not a negotiation? 
and that maybe that's a rite of passage. But again, you're you're uh, and, and has anyone besides Picard ever nailed a Ferengi high to the wall the way you say that was supposed to be first contact for the Federation? But there's yes. other there's other players out there. And then your fourth point here: let's see Picard have to wheel and deal the Ferengi firsthand. And I, you know, we have that come bits and pieces. Captain's Holiday that I wound up writing, his one of his first scripts and his first Ferengi, where Picard's on vacation, they have to deal with a kidnapper. But when Loxana Troy is kidnapped, um, and he has to wheel and deal to get her back in a very comic way with his Shakespeare, but it's a. My point is here in this memo, you're asking some very I don't want to say obvious questions, but some really logical bits that if you're really going to flesh this. This race out. My my favorite though down here is who's the leader or the CEO of the alliance? Had to get there. Who do you have to kill? And you know, very famously on DS Nine, we get into the to the Grand Nagus and and the position over there. So and, and number six to me harkens back to the original series days and some of those infamous memos about Vulcan names, <laughs> Spick and Spork and Spark and <laughs> and uh, not that this point was ever taken. That we know of, um, maybe someone in in, in uh, off canon got to this, but we pretty much just they pretty much stuck with one name, Ferengi names. Um, I know I, I kind of danced through all your points there, but do you remember at the time you wrote this that these were, you know, top of mind items, or they just struck you a certain way that you decided to kind of speak up in a void or? Well, I felt that they just weren't completely addressed in Herb's memo, which you may have in front of you, but. Uh, um, at the time, I thought they just needed more expanding of ideas so that we could jump off those or ditch them as the case may be, but just things I had thought about mm-hmm. and were important to me in terms of storytelling. Well, these are some nuts and bolts aspects of their society yes. that yes. were that would couldn't help but spin off stories and, and wrinkles and textures and stories. Yeah, her, um, now this is, you wrote this in June, mm-hmm. and you were with the series, as you said, 13 episodes? We, through the 12th episode, which was yes. too short a season. Um, but you, there was a lot of storm and drang going on, a lot of drama, or chaos in the bridge, as Shatner's documentary. What's, between here and leaving, why don't you tell us about um, your decision to leave? Because it was your decision. Yes. Well, I felt I was being shut out of some of the storytelling. Um, I was not writing anything except I had written the pilot, the initial pilot, uh, and then Gene Roddenberry added a half hour to it uh, because they were going up and down between 90 minutes and and an hour and 90 minutes an hour on the pilot. And finally, I just wrote 90 minutes. And then they said, oh, it's going to be two hours. So uh, Gene came up with the other half hour, which included Q. and um, I felt my story was the most important part, which was getting the crew together on their very first voyage together. Mm-hmm. And what is the mystery at Farpoint? What is going on at Farpoint that is so strange? Uh, that was my story. And uh, that stayed in, but Roddenberry added more. Right. Well, you tackled the – it's a pilot, and the primary purpose of a pilot is to introduce the characters right. and the situation. And that was right. – the, and then, and then have a plot, an opening plot. To start that. But then, right, you've got um, um, the credit with The Naked Now, yes, I believe. But we've got all this rich sheaf of all your right in there pitching and your commenting yeah. and as well, we I are did, here. I did have uh, four credits on the show. Um, but uh, it got to be not as fun 
as it had been on the original show because there were things going on with Gene Roddenberry that uh, they were bad. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. people were being harmed uh, either in, in terms of their ego, or in terms of their work, in terms of who they were, um, and it was not a pleasant place to be actually. So sometimes. We stayed away from the main office a lot. I, I yeah. had an office at the end of the building and uh, pretty much stayed there, uh, minding my own business, writing story editing where I needed to, rewriting where I needed to, doing my job, but uh, not interacting too much with everybody else. Keeping your head down, yeah. which is total 180 from the original series yes. days. It's sad when you have a, good, a great memory and you go back and you, you feel like you can't go home again but that was when I mean now it's come out now we're a little more familiar about the time I guess there was a statute limitations on talking about family problems or whatever but the whole saga of Leonard Majlish and the interference and supposedly on Gene's behalf but kind of running amok really you had a you had a Leonard story you were talking about with your office or was it you were on your you had your computer locked and I always had my computer locked it always had a code word on it that uh, only I knew and uh, only one other person, and that was David, really, in case of necessary, mm-hmm. him having to get into it. Um, but I had gone up to the ladies' room, uh, which was on the second floor, and as I was coming <laughs> down to my office on the first floor in the corner, uh, I see Leonard Maislish poking around my door, and then he stealthily opens it, and he's peering in. And I was standing on the steps behind him, and I said, something I can do for you, Leonard? And <laughs> he leapt about four feet. Uh, I think he was trying to sneak into my room and see what my computer was holding. But he just sort of slushed off a, an apology and walked away. Uh, I didn't care about that so much because I knew he couldn't get into my computer. But... I did care when we caught him an hour after a script had been turned in. He was sitting in the front part of Roddenberry's office at the secretarial chair. Uh, Susan Sackett wasn't around. And uh, he was changing a script. He was writing, rewriting a script. And we said, you're not allowed to do that. Herb Wright and I both found him doing that. So you're not allowed to do that. You're not a member of the Writers Guild. And he said, oh, uh, well, uh, Gene dictated these changes to me. And we... Both Herb and I said, it's only been an hour since he's had it. He hasn't even read it yet. And that was... And that's really... And we stopped him from doing that. Right. Uh, because it was definitely a trespass on Writers Guild rules. Well, it, that day, but it took a hearing and, and, a, and a decision coming down from the Writers Guild that got formal, didn't it? About uh, Leonard. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And finally about not being on the lot. But, um, and that was really... I mean, it's like what... It, it's amazing in hindsight that the next generation got out of the gate the yes. first season with that kind of turmoil happening. But we were talking earlier about, you know, that's a great that's a great reason for a lot of the chaos being sown there. But that you were also thinking in hindsight, maybe Gene was um, being more his personality was changing. But Absolutely. maybe you sense he wasn't the same old Gene you'd always known. And that was adding to this chaos. But you were saying maybe you've had some reflection later about what might have been going on, too. Oh, yes. Uh, it was a meeting between... I think Morris Hurley was in the room, uh, uh, me, Herbright, and Bob Lewin, and Gene. And Gene got up to make a point, and he literally spun around in his tracks and smashed into a wall. And we just looked at each other and said, we're not saying anything. And we, we ignored it. Yeah. We let it go. Because, But it was indicative of something wrong physically very wrong physically and 
we didn't know who to ask or who to turn to. Got, you smashed into a wall, then turned around and just sat back and went on as right. if nothing had happened. Exactly. Yes. But it felt like a not just a like he tripped. No, no. It was a like a neural. Yes. Physio neural yeah. kind of moment lapse because he had the strokes later on, and I think you were saying that maybe the maybe there have been some earlier ones that we didn't know about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as early as first season. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because the writing process was nothing, uh, not at all like it had been originally. And I mean, because there's all these outside forces, but they're really, I mean, he had made sure to have a smooth ride. It wasn't like the old battles with censors and NBC and ratings and all that. That had been pretty much removed as an obstacle. So it's like, hey, look, we've got a, we had this open road, free path. Here's what's different this time. Yes. And still all of this. I mean, what, you got discouraged and left. But do you remember, like, did you have time to have a party going, what's going on, and, and diagnose it, and if only we didn't? I mean, what were your thoughts then at the time? Well, basically, I think we all were thinking the same thing. I don't know about Morris Hurley because I didn't talk to him that much, but Bob Lewin and uh, David Gerald and I and even Herb uh, would put our heads together and say, what's going on here? Why, why is this not a smooth ride? Because we all know story. We all know how to put this together. We, you know, we're, we know our Star Trek. Uh, but there were so many problems to overcome and, and, and uh, defeat that it made every day very hard. And we tried to work together so that we, at least our part of it was smoothed out. But we would often encounter uh, difficulties on the executive producer level, Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. And do you th- was a lot, it may have been early health lapses and personality changes affected yes. by that, but also did you have any idea that, aside from the day you caught him, that Leonard Majlish may have been his attorney, supposedly only attorney, only an attorney, was as much to blame in stirring things up and setting people against each other and just causing chaos that way? Well, at, he the time, did, he, at the time, he he did get in our way several times, but uh, we tried to move around him as much as possible. And wherever possible, we cited writers' guild rules. Right, <laughs> because we're writers. This is the job we're doing. All right, you don't do it. You're a lawyer, and um, uh, we just had to get around him a lot of times. Yeah, because he was the impediment in our path to Gene. Well, you, of your own volition, left. And and because it was a sad situation, you said, and uh, most of the rest of that crew were either let go of the writing crew, were either let go or left. David Gerald left early. I left uh, toward the end of September, uh, early October. Mm-hmm. Um, Herb was dismissed in. Uh, let me see. I think it was January. He left the next year, mm-hmm. and Bob Lewin left before that. Even I'm not exactly sure when, but 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 Bob left too. So. Uh, it was a very difficult situation, and we just got through it as best we could. But I hated leaving because I felt I hadn't perhaps done my best job, but there were so many impediments in the way that right. you couldn't do your best job. Right. It was, it was a superhuman effort even to get that far. And then, But as far as her bride goes, he went on, um, actually came circled back around when things had calmed down. It was a wholly different story yes. on the writing side. Michael Piller was in charge, and Herb came circled back around and wrote some scripts. And then had a very, we were talking about, he was determined to get back and for a few years was going to resurrect Quester after Gene passed. And uh, was going to resurrect that, and then but died suddenly. Yes, he died unexpectedly. Uh, um, was taken two, ill very fast and uh, faded away very fast. Yeah, 2005. I shouldn't say faded away. He, he died of a cranial pressure 
and uh, people said it was kind of the equivalent of a fractured skull. Uh, yeah, but not from an injury. No, right. No, right, it, right. it was a physical thing. Unfortunately, I think the the official cause was bone cancer, but that affected his skull. Very sad, right? Yeah. And right when he was going to make a go at uh, trying to bring Quester back and yeah. modernize it, apparently. But a great writer. He had two shots at it here. And, um, but anyway, yes, Father Ferengi, a subject that would get much expanded <laughs> later on. But as a great comeback from a perceived you know, failure to launch, but not from lack of trying by Herb and you and everybody at the beginning. Um, so good on them. Always interesting to read what's, what the roots are, what the first thoughts are. And Dorothy, thanks so much for... Shedding light on Ferengi and Herb and, and that time. You're welcome. I'm th- pleased to come. Absolutely. We may even have you back. <laughs> <laughs> the Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All our documents are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Now, for more great podcasts, check out podcasts.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at LarryNimichek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.